Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to a new episode of Land Grant Holy Land in Conversation. My name is Matt Tamanini. On this podcast, we talk to people in and around Ohio State athletics and the sporting world at large to bring you a different insight and perspective to the teams, athletes, and university that you love. On today's episode, we are in conversation with Land Grant Holy Land's editor emeritus and the associate director of college brands for SB Nation, Matt Brown. In our chat, we talk about the first half of Ohio State's football season, as well as the debate over name, image, and likeness rights for student-athletes. As you already likely know, if you are listening to a Land Grant Holy Land podcast, anytime you get Matt Brown talking about college football, it's a wonderful opportunity to learn. His insights into the Buckeyes, Ryan Day, Justin Fields, and college football at large are fantastic, so I'm really excited for you to hear this episode. But first, you can follow Matt Brown on Twitter at MattSBN, and we will have a link in the show notes in your podcasting app as well as on LGHL to Matt's college football newsletter, Extra Points, a serious must-read for all college football fans. So, with all of that out of the way, here's my conversation with Matt Brown. All right, Matt, so we are at the halfway point of Ohio State season, and they came off essentially what was like a midterm game, uh, if we're looking at the, the midway point kind of uh, analogy here against Michigan State. Um, and things have gone pretty well, but from a big picture point of view through the first six games of the Ryan Day slash Justin Fields era, just what are your holistic macro views on this team so far? I think this team has done better than I could have possibly expected and, and probably better than almost anybody else could have expected. We, we knew coming in that this was going to be a really talented outfit, but there were certainly holes, right? None of us had ever really seen Justin Fields, uh, you know, start and have to shoulder this high, this heavy load of an offense. And you know, over the spring, reports maybe were were a little bit more mixed. There were some questions about quarterback depth. I think there were some reasonable questions about this offensive line, and of course, you know, new coaching staff, defense that struggled at times last season. And they have smashed every single one of the, every single one of those expectations. You know, Fields has been one of the most efficient and, and explosive quarterbacks in the entire country and would have much better statistics if he regularly played through the fourth quarter, which <laughs> he hasn't had to do right. for, for most of the season. The running game looks you know, night and day better compared to last season. The offensive line has looked excellent outside of one quarter against Michigan State and maybe one quarter against FAU. Um, this offense has smashed multiple pretty good defenses. Michigan State is an elite defense, and Indiana and Cincinnati have good ones, and they've just they've run through everybody. So there's there's still some there's obviously some difficult games up ahead, and the right. depth and a couple of position groups is still maybe not ideal. You know this is this team is one you know left tackle injury or one quarterback injury from from being very very different. 
But I don't understand how you could look at anything else that's happened right now and draw any other conclusion than this team has just been an overwhelming success and is unquestionably one of the best two or three teams in the entire country right now. Absolutely. I don't think there's any argument there. And I think we're finally starting to see that from not only the national media, but from pollsters uh, and even fans uh, alike as Ohio State continues to move up a lot of rankings and gets a lot of uh, attention, not only from humans, but from the robots who do all of the analytics uh, as well. But you, you mentioned that there are still some holes. And they're going into an open week this week. They play Northwestern a week from this Friday. Um, what are the areas that you think still need significant or substantive improvement in order for the Buckeyes to actually contend once they make, if they make, the college football playoff? Well, I, I don't know if there are necessarily significant changes. I mean, on a, on a per-play basis, Ohio State is – within a whisker right now of being the top team in the country, according to the last SP plus rankings. And that, that actually might change in two weeks. Um, you know, after, after the Northwestern game uh, there, are, the, I think you would like to see the offensive line, you know, play a game against another good defense and be consistently excellent all four quarters. I mean, that's got kind of a nitpicky thing. You know, you'll listen to Brandon Bowen, I think in the, in his interview after the Michigan State game, and he was saying, you know, maybe we weren't totally prepared for what we were going to what we were going to see. We had some execution issues. We fixed it, and then you know, then you road grade pave uh, one of the best defensive fronts in college football. You can take a quarter or two off when you're facing a team like Michigan State that has really a pretty bad offense, um, and you can, you know, if Ohio State did that against Northwestern. You know, it would be forgiven if there's a little bit of a hangover coming in and on a, on a non-Saturday in Evanston. It's going to be a weird thing. You can still win that game because Northwestern's offense is terrible. If you're doing that against Wisconsin or against Penn State, I don't. You you could really put yourself behind an eight ball a little bit. You know, we also haven't really had to see Ohio State play from behind. The the we haven't really had to see them play with against really meaningful adversity beyond one quarter. I, I think the Michigan State game was a good test for that. But the, the biggest stuff are things that you and I aren't going to be able to really see, right? You aren't going to we, we can't tell how a team with a, as a new head coach and some new leaders will be able to maintain focus and drive over the course of a season, especially as they you know, are able to read a lot more positive things about them. We're not able to see exactly the development of backups to ensure depth in case people get hurt. Ohio State's had reasonably good injury luck so far. You need that to compete for a title. We'll see. It's those, it's those things in the background that are really going to help determine whether this is a Big Ten title caliber team or a national title, not national title caliber team. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a very good point. The, the only on-field thing, in addition to kind of what you mentioned about with the consistency from the offensive line, is the other position group that we came into this season uh, a little concerned about, but has you know, exceeded my expectations so far is the linebacking core. But I think against Michigan State, there were still some things that felt very 2018 Bill Davis-ish, uh, Davis-ish um, where Tough Borland, he made some great plays uh, on some screens and blew up some stuff in, in the line. But there were a few moments where he got burned in pass coverage over the middle. There's still, I'm still not 100% sure why we aren't seeing Brendan White play the bullet position much very at all. And Pete Warner is kind of playing that you see him. There were a couple times on some big pass plays where he had to drop back and play safety, which I'm still not a hundred percent sure I understand. But as you said, new coaching staff, I, I feel like we have to give them the benefit of the doubt because of how things or how well things have gone thus far. 
Yeah, I was a little surprised by, by both of those personnel <laughs> decisions as well. Um, the fact that this is a mostly new defensive coaching group, and they came in and reached similar conclusions yeah. about the personnel. Like, hey, you know, two different two different groups of people said we should we should keep playing tough Borland a lot. Makes me think that they see something here that I don't. And the fact that they were able to either you know schematically hide his disadvantages and, and allow him to be in a position where he can do more of the stuff he's really good at. Um, I, I think I think there you can take the good with the bad if you trust your secondary. I, I would like that unit to be a little bit more um, consistent as well, especially because I think that there are going to be other teams in the back half of the schedule that are going to try to exploit that position group a little bit more. But exactly, we are, yeah, we yeah. are picking at nits a little bit, right? Yeah. Like there, there hasn't been a game within three touchdowns this season. <laughs> Yeah, and they've covered other than the the FAU game where obviously there was a little bit of an on ramp to get ready to the season. They've covered in every game too. It's not like we saw a lot with both Urban Meyer and Jim Tressel where they won, but it was not always exactly the most fun games to watch. They were kind of more stressful than they needed to be. They've literally covered huge spreads in all of these games following the the season opener. So I, you're right, we are probably nitpicking a bit, but when you're six and zero and going into a bye week, what else are you going to do? Um, but speaking <laughs> yeah. of this new coaching staff, you, of course, are a renowned college football historian. So I, I wanted to kind of see, of course, only six games in, nine games if you count last season. But what your kind of opinion is of Ryan Day in the history of Ohio State football, whether that's in his approach or his journey early on, prisoner of the moment, where do you think he kind of fits in the pantheon not in terms of success on field stuff but just as a guy personality approach how he got here where does he kind of fit with all of his predecessors yeah that's a, that's a good question you know what makes day really interesting to me is that his background his resume and i think his demeanor are really different from the kind of people that typically are ohio state coaches right like you know from woody onward with one exception they were all pretty definitively Ohio guys, guys who were either born in this state, coached in this state, attended universities in this state, and had really deep ties to high schools within the state. Because while this has changed a little bit over the last decade, as Ohio State had to recruit more nationally, you know, building that wall around Ohio and the Great Lakes region has, has been an enormous part of their recruiting success. Um, historically, it's not typically a school that has deep pipelines with the NFL. Um, and they also are a school that's almost always hiring people who have been head coaches before. This is a, this is a premier exactly, job. Yeah. Um, yeah, now, now, now Trestle's background and Cooper's background, you know, and, and, and Tickle and everybody, they're, they're all a little bit different, but Day is not an Ohioan. He's from New Hampshire. His, you know, his coaching tree lineage is through Chip Kelly, um, and the NFL, which are you know, two pretty different things from where Ohio State historically is. Um, and he hadn't been a head coach before, you know, he, he was, he was, this, this was a, a big hotshot coordinator. And, and I wouldn't say that he's a, anywhere close to, at least in public, as big a personality as somebody like Urban Meyer was, as somebody like Woody was, as somebody, uh, like Harbaugh or, or, or James Franklin or some of the other guys in the big 10, he's a more understated guy that we see, you know, still thoughtful. And we're going to get to know him and how he responds to adversity and how he responds to, you know, changes in the program in the offseason, he's different. Um, on the field, the on-the-field product, I think, is, is a little bit different. It's, it's not night and day different from, I think, what, what Ohio State was last year near the end of the Urban Meyer era, but 
the offensive DNA is, is not what it was under Jim Tressel. Now, nobody cares when you're <laughs> destroying everybody right now, right? He wins a national title. He gets back into the playoff. He beats Michigan again. Like, nobody will care about any of those other things. It, it, it made his hire, you know, I think a little bit unique. And it might surprise me a little bit if he ends up being here for like nine or ten years, in part because Ohio State coaches often don't. Um, but it, 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 it'll, that will make his career – uh, fun to watch. It's 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 a nice thing, at least in the very 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 beginning, to see that you know you can bring in a talented guy that doesn't fit a template and still be successful here. And that's not true at every other big time school, I don't think. No, you're you're 100 percent right. And I remember last fall when Urban Meyer was suspended for those first three games. When he had the first press conference, Ryan Day did his first press conference. I remember saying probably in the land grant slack, like, oh, this guy's good. Like he's he's different. He's thoughtful, um, but he's very clear in what he's saying. Um, and, you know, to me, he kind of strikes me thus far as being like the best of Trestle and Urban, where he's, you know, kind of the demeanor that more hues towards Jim Trestle, but has the offensive, you know, creativity of Urban Meyer, at least in his early uh, part of his Ohio State tenure. So those are the good parts uh, that we've seen from him. And like you said, though, we'll we'll see him in adversity later, but uh, I, I don't think that you can really be too upset about what he's brought to the job thus far. Unquestionably. The one other thing that, you know, people on this beat or people who have gotten to, you know, work with him a little bit more closely have, have relayed to me is that compared to college head coaches generally, which is a weird sample group here, uh, the people have said, like, I'm surprised with how normal he seems. <laughs> like, you know, Meyer is, you know, pretty famously a very high-strung guy, an extremely intense guy, and, and that helps him be very successful at the beginning of tenure. But I think if you, you know, last year, if you would ask him about the last movie that he saw, or if you would ask him something about that wasn't about football um, or directly related to his family, there would have been, a, like, a does-not-compute kind of thing. You know, Harbaugh's like that on the complete far end of the spectrum and a a lot of football coaches are just so famously narrow-minded and intensely focused on this one particular little thing that their holistic self uh, changes a little bit and the and this job has such high pressure that it would be a, a major surprise if that you know didn't wear on somebody eventually um, but like the early returns were you know this is compared to a football coach he seems like a regular human being um which is uh, there aren't a whole lot of people, especially at the top end of this profession, where I think you could really say that. Yeah, on game day this week, they had an interview with Gus Malzahn, and he just said, I'm weird. I know I'm weird. Uh, and that, that struck me as like, yeah, you and most other college football coaches in one way or another, they might not have the uh, the, the self-recognition to admit it on national television, but that's probably true. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I back before the season, I talked with Bud Elliott. And last week, I talked with Kirk Herbstreit, and they both talked about how personable he is with players. And I think that goes a long way with kind of what you said. He just likes to talk to him. It is important to him to have those relationships. And he's just kind of a different dude, which I really appreciate, uh, you know, coming into Ohio State. But a couple of real quick football on-field questions before we move into some other topics. But coming sure. into the season, I didn't know what we were going to get with J.K. Dobbins. I, I, I knew that he was an incredible talent, but he had a down year, even though he rushed for a thousand yards so far this season, with all due respect to Jonathan Taylor, I think JK Dobbins very well could be the best running back in the country. His numbers are almost identical 
in terms of, of yards per carry, yards per game as Jonathan Taylor, but he has an extra gear and an extra bit of excitement that I don't know that, that Taylor has. There was a play uh, against Michigan State where he ran up the middle, would have been a 12-yard gain, ran into like two defenders. He made a 90-degree turn to the left, ran across literally a yard line, and then turned it upfield for 17 more yards, which was something that looked almost... Bo Jackson Tecmo bullish. Uh, and it was really kind of impressive. He turned it in what should have been a 12 yard gain into a 29 yard gain. And I've just been so thoroughly impressed by him uh, as a player this year and what he's been able to do. As you're looking around the country, obviously there's Jonathan Taylor, but where does J.K. Dobbins fit in for you in terms of the hierarchy of college football running backs this season? Yeah, I, I, he's probably in the top three or four. You're, you're right. It's, it's hard, a little bit harder, I think, to. To compare exactly, you know, with, with, with Taylor in Wisconsin, you, you know that um, he's going to be the focal point of that offense, and he's going to get 25 carries a game. And they don't have the supporting cast to necessarily take the load off of him the same way that Ohio State does. Um, so on one hand, you can look and say, hey, if they're, if they're doing, you know, different, relatively similar statistical profiles, but um, Taylor has to account for more of the defense. Maybe, maybe that's a, a sign here for him, but you know, that's, that's Wisconsin's problem. That's not, that's not an <laughs> Ohio State's problem. Yeah. One of the things that I've really seen from this year that I think has helped a lot. I think his, I think Dobbins vision and patience have improved a little bit from last season. Last year, it, it seems like the whole offense at times was pressing a little bit. The, the holes are going to be there. And what makes Dobbins so special patience or not, is he has the agility and, and the, I, I think the, the force of acceleration coming out of a jump cut or coming out of a turn that very few defenders can match. And that helps you turn those, you know, you get a little bit into space on these kind of on these bubble screens or, um, you know, on the outside here where you can turn five yards into 12 yards and 12 yards into 29 uh, relatively quickly. He's not the same kind of runner as, as Teague, who I think can just kind of carry people yeah. and fall forward really well. Um, which I think Taylor might do a little, a little bit better, but instead of just plunging, you know, full speed ahead, like you're playing, you know, NCAA 14, just mash the accelerator button and try to go forward. Um, if you're, if, if you wait just like that half second, that that's really helps him be so, be so much more efficient. You know, it, it's nice that he gets to play in an offense with probably three NFL wide receivers and an NFL tight end and one of the best quarterbacks in the country. And so, you know, defenses can't load the box necessarily, and you also have a great running quarterback, which he didn't, which he didn't have last year. That you know, that was right. the other thing. It's the Ohio State is you know not so much this year, but you know the last couple of years was really built on read option running plays, um, and that's less a part of the offense now. wasn't a part of the offense at all last year, and that was a, a difficult transition. But that makes this offense so so much better. I mean, I think you and I both knew coming in, hey, new quarterback. You know, some some new scheme wrinkles here. This is going to have to be much more of a running team than it was before yeah, when Ohio State was like low key Texas Tech. Um, <laughs> and so far, the returns are really, really good. Anybody who can run for 300 yards on Michigan State, I don't care if you're at home, that's a really good running offense. Yeah. I mean, J.K. Dobbins put up 172 yards against Michigan State and didn't play like the last two or three drives, which was like yeah. the second time he was within shouting distance of 200 yards in a game. And Ryan Day was like, no, you're good, which I understand. Save him for the long haul. But that's a nice round number that I'm sure he would have liked to have gotten. But I think he understands and appreciates the long term goals of the team rather than the individual in-game goals. So, um, yeah, if, if Ohio State's undefeated, regardless of his total yardage <laughs> number, he'll be a candidate for New York. Yeah, well. 
Well, and, and uh, you know, the NFL draft, too, despite how running backs have been devalued. I think that's really what he's looking forward to at the end of this season. Like we'll I would paid. be. I, yeah, I, I would be shocked if he's back in Columbus next season. And the only way I can see that happening is if he gets hurt this season. Um, otherwise, I think he's going to make some cash uh, come April or May, whenever the draft is. But um, last on field question, Matt, you are somebody who appreciates the totality of college football. So is there a team? that might be under the radar, a non-Big Ten team, and not necessarily somebody who's like going to contend for a college football player for even a New Year's Six Bowl, but just a team that's fun to watch that's maybe caught your attention this season. Yeah. Um, we should be watching the American Athletic, um, not yeah. just because the teams that you are heard of, I've heard of, right? Like UCF's down a little bit this year. They've had a lot of quarterback injuries. Um, they're not able to play quite as fast uh, as they were before. I mean, like they're still fine, but... Like that's that's not the team to watch. And while Cincinnati is really good and could be a top twenty-five team at the end of the year, no offense to Luke Fickle and the you know seventy-two kids from Ohio on that team, <laughs> they're not always the most aesthetically fun team for me to watch. They're they they're really there's 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 Jim Trestle DNA all over that that team, and I mean that as a yeah. compliment, but it's not not messy television. SMU is fun. Tulane is really fun. You know, yeah. Tulane was, has always been kind of the college football hipsters pick because they have these beautiful uniforms and they were running the triple, um, even though they've been, you know, they've been this historically terrible program. Um, well, historically, I guess after like 1950, terrible program. Um, they have, they're not running that same, that same um, option scheme anymore. It's still heavily informed by that, but it's like, well, hey, what if we had an option scheme, but still pass the ball 16 times a game and more beautiful uniforms uh, and play, you know, knock your teeth out defense, and you're in this really cool stadium in New Orleans. Like they, they are worth watching. They are probably top twenty-five good. SMU is top yeah. twenty-five good, and it's, you know, I think it, it's spiritually correct in a year where a lot of a lot of states, a lot of people are talking about ways to legally pay players. The SMU is now good again. That feels correct. <laughs> that's off. That's that's a wonderful transition, Matt. Because uh, we are going to go. And, well, they pay me the big bucks, man. That is, yeah. I also throw in Memphis. Memphis is a fun team to watch too, uh, coming out of the uh, American Athletic Conference. But um, they are surprisingly defense oriented. Memphis. I have some questions about their quarterback play, but um, they're 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 very strong too. It's it's a that's a good leak. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let's move into that. Uh, uh, California Senate Bill 206 that you kind of uh, mentioned there. Obviously, I think a lot of people have have heard about the name, image, and likeness debate going on, uh, not only in college sports, but in legislative bodies, and of course, where it be- rightly belongs on Twitter. Um, and we've talked about it in this podcast feed a number of times. So I think people are, are, are at least kind of know the basics of it. But what really has struck me has been the rhetoric surrounding it, both from administrators and media members who, to me, and I'm just speaking for me, it sounds like they're just trying to scare people into thinking that if you let student athletes make some money on the side, that it's going to be the end of college sports that you love and spend days watching, you know, every fall. It just seems like a big propaganda scare tactic to me. And it's really disappointed me from administrators and media members alike. Yeah, that, that's that's unfortunate, and I'm going to have a little bit more unpacking this, I think, in, a, in some future editions of, of Extra Points. But I, we have to remember here that this is historically what the NCAA does. When you go back to yeah. when Title IX was announced, um, 
multiple uh, university presidents, athletic directors, and, and higher level NCAA administrators said, like, we can't afford this. This is going to be the end of college athletics. We're all going to be bankrupt. And then, lo and behold, they all started women's basketball teams and soccer teams, and very few of them went bankrupt. Then when um, the O'Bannon case uh, happened and, and schools were forced to, to – or not forced, were suddenly allowed to offer cost of attendance stipends, Boston College voted against it, saying hey, this is like the slippery slope to amateurism, and a bunch of other smaller programs said this would bankrupt them. And then I believe just about everybody in FDS and half of FCS, schools that definitely don't make money, suddenly found ways to come up with the five grand. And nobody really picked up an enormous recruiting advantage from it. The, the, the doomsday approach is you know, part and parcel of how they've done things. Really, I think coming back from like the 1950s when we first had beginning television legislation. Now, I'm sympathetic to the idea that there may be unintended consequences or things that we cannot completely foresee totally. depending on how this legislation is, is or this policy is enacted. Because there's, there's a lot of different ways, you know, logistically that this could go. But I think anybody that's telling you, like, this is going to be the end of college football or the end of college athletics as we know it is either trying to sell you something or doesn't really understand the financial realities of both demand for student athletes and for how athletic department budgets really work. Like this, this is not going to be a seismic catastrophe. Yeah. And the thing that's really kind of surprised me is how, how many people who should know better are trying to make this out to be the equivalent of schools paying players. That's, that's not what these bills are. Um, and maybe that is something that's a conversation that probably needs to be had maybe in conjunction with this, maybe after this. But it, it seems to me that the the equating of the universities paying out the money you pay for a ticket going directly into the pockets of players and what this bill and what Anthony Gonzalez's proposed legislation would be are two completely separate things. And And I don't know if it's just people trying to make things as simplistic as possible or if it's others trying to pull wool over fans eyes but these are two so totally different things that while there is some overlap i understand it, it just seems odd that they're not necessarily in my opinion being completely truthful as to what is actually going on yeah i i i, I think there's a couple of different things at play here and, and one to be completely charitable there's a lot of different state bills that are proposed right now. California is the only one that's passed, and that, you're absolutely right, makes it very clear universities are not directly paying the players. This is just for third parties. However, a few other states, South Carolina and New York specifically, um, I believe uh, there's well, at least one other one has language similar to this, that do allow schools to pay limited stipends, like five grand or under directly to players. New York's is the most aggressive, I believe, of any of the 12 states that have, <laughs> have, have talked about this so far. New York requires schools to set aside 15% of their athletic revenue uh, for a fund to help pay for long-term health care or to pay out to athletes. Um, I do not expect that bill to pass, but most states, most, most states don't. Most states are, use, are using language similar to California. Part of that, I think, is you know perhaps confusion from these various states operations part of that is because there's been a you know kind of twitter colloquialism of just pay the players as a way of as a shorthand way of saying we need to address the financial inequality for for, for athletes right now whether it's the school paying the player or the bag man paying the player or an above the board you know merchandising deal <laughs> pay the player we don't care 
somebody cut a check. Yeah. Um, and that's an effective messaging system. I can understand why, why the nuance gets confused in there a little bit. There's also definitely some bad faith arguing. Mark Emmert is arguing in bad faith when he says that like this, Absolutely. The, the, the distinction between a car dealership paying and the school paying is inconsequential, that they're all direct employees of the university. Amateurism is over. Like, I don't think that that's, that's arguing in good faith. When Doug Gottlieb says something like this or when some like, you know, uh, some Dan Dakich type says something like this, I don't think they're arguing in, in good faith. That's catcalling to a, a particular kind of like, you know, kids have it too good old, old timer type of person. Well, look, we all got to make a buck. Like, I get that's your shtick, but that's not a good faith argument. Um, I understand why there's some confusion in some places, but, you know, to your larger point, are some people doing this because they're not being honest? Yes, I think that's true. Yeah, and, and I think that there's something about, you know, Ohio State Athletic Director Gene Smith did a press conference before Ryan Day's weekly press conference last Tuesday, a week ago, and it was interesting to watch the line that he walked as one of the co-chairs for the name image and likeness committee for the NCAA that is going to deliver their recommendations at the end of this month. He was trying to toe the NCAA line, which he has said publicly, and I've had issues with him saying it publicly. But then he and he said, I'm not going to give you my personal opinions, which I understand whatever, uh, out of respect for his his committee members, his working uh, group members. But then he said when asked, you know, he thought that this is something that should have been handled a long time ago. He, he said that it was something that he was pushing for back when they had the debate about the full cost of, of attendance, scholarship increases and whatever. And to me, what is so frustrating about what you were saying about Mark Emmerich is the fact that the NCAA has purposely drug its feet on this. They very easily could have been out in front of this issue to get to the point where California and New York and South Carolina and Florida and even Ohio is talking about it and Anthony Gonzalez on the federal level. That never would have had to have happened if the NCAA would have been proactive and looked at these issues, saw the growing concern about this and addressed it ahead of time. So it's one thing when someone like Gene Smith says it where – out of one side of his mouth, he's towing the company line. But on the other side, he's saying, yeah, we screwed this up. And where Mark Emmert is trying to come off as if the NCAA is a holy body that can do no wrong. And they're trying to protect some moral safe ground to prevent the degradation of college athletics, which the degradation has happened because of the NCAA, in my opinion. Yeah, that I mean, like I, again, I think that that's pretty consistent with the history of this organization. that They have been reactive rather than proactive you there, there's been a couple of kind of big seismic events um uh, there we have the, the the sanity code which is the kind of the beginning of, of universal academic standards that was reactive decision and the ncaa loses do you have how they they dealt with television and attendance that was a reactive decision uh they didn't really work with the tv companies that and, and it ended up going to the supreme court several years later and they lose um and that's really caused a lot of the financial problems within the sport it's, by, by waiting this long, they've lost a ton of leverage. What they, I, I think philosophically, maybe a majority of athletic directors and people who work closely in the college athletics who are under 50 want this to happen. They figure, listen, let, let, let's get out in front of it. Let's, let's build a controlled marketplace. It's honestly not going to impact that many athletes. This buys us some goodwill. It removes the distraction. Let's, let's get it over with and do it on our terms. But the, a lot of the people who are involved right now in the major steering committees, 
um, the, the biggest voices in this sport are people who have been involved in athletics for decades. Like, you know, Gene Smith is one of the most, um, you know, widely respected and influential athletic directors in the country. He's been an, an athletic director about as long as I've been alive. Um, you know, Barry Alvarez is, is, has been a very outspoken voice in this. You know, when this bill comes into effect, he's going to be like 77 years old. If you look at the list of the people on there, most of them are over 60. And a lot of them, they just can't envision any other world. And, and they may, you know, win out here and it's going to hurt their peers and hurt their institutions down the line because they're not going to get as restricted or limited a marketplace as they probably could have gotten three or four years ago. The tide has turned. Yeah. And the, you know, the big argument that they so often have is that the influence that this would have on the competitive balance in college sports. And I think that that's kind of accepted as, OK, yeah, that makes sense. The big schools will have the advantages. But I've heard a few people, Tom Luganbill, uh, Ryan Leaf, both from ESPN, um, thinking that it actually could help the competitive imbalance, if not increase it, because rather than the best recruits only going to the big schools, which is pretty much what we have now. They think that there could be an opportunity for players to go to maybe stay closer to home um, and not have to go to one of the power, you know, 10 schools where they might have to sit for two or three years. But they could go to maybe a place, let's say, if they're from central Illinois, go to Champaign, make some money as a freshman and sophomore as you're playing. Your name is already known and then still have the opportunity to go pro if you are a four or five star guy. I don't necessarily see a seismic shift in that. I don't think anyone's ever going to, you know, four or five recruits are never going to turn down offers from Ohio state and Alabama and Clemson on mass. But if someone's, you know, wants an opportunity to make some money now and they think they're good enough to go to the NFL, uh, maybe they could go to a Rutgers or Vandy or UConn and make a little cash before making themselves eligible. So I don't see it necessarily changing the dynamics and being a completely level playing field. But I, I do think that there is some merit to that argument. Yeah, I, honestly, I think that makes more intellectual sense to me. Um, like, let's be clear. Um, we do not have competitive ballots now, and we haven't really <laughs> since World War II yeah, in, in, yeah, in this yeah. sport. The, the one thing you can do to kind of legislate competitive balance is scholarship limits. Right now, you're only, you're, you, know, you can only sign about 25 a class, and the Ohio States and the Alabamas and the Clemsons basically have signed almost as good of a recruiting class as they possibly can. Like you realistically can't sign 25 blue chippers because everybody realizes that you can't play 25 blue chippers. Right. Um, yeah. You know, it kind of depends on the geographic distribution of where the recruits are. So realistically speaking, like Ohio state recruiting can't get that much better. Alabama recruiting can't get that much better. And already a lot of pretty talented guys sign with these schools and transfer. It can probably only become more equal. And, and your, to your point, I, I think that's what may happen. What I don't have a, as good a feeling on is, is what kind of markets may have this advantage. I've heard some people argue that, you know, if you're a school like Houston, which is in the fourth biggest city yeah. in the country, maybe the third biggest city in the country in the next like decade or so, massive market, you're going to have a lot more local merchandising opportunities than you might in Starkville. On the other hand, um, if you go to Starkville, every single small business exactly. uh, cares about that particular program, whereas Houston's market share in, in the city of Houston is very, very small. I know there's a lot of places that are simply not going to give a crap about um, the Cougars. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in Greenville, North Carolina, and Pirate Athletics, even when they're terrible, is easily the biggest story in town for, for literally anything. And so there may actually be more endorsement opportunities there, especially if you have a good career. 
where you can come back and be the professional alumni um, that you might not at a, at a different area. It's going to depend, I think, in part on the schools themselves. I wouldn't be shocked if we see athletic departments start hiring somebody to be a director of endorsement opportunities. And I yeah. could see a school, you know, this thing Ohio State could potentially do is say, tell you what, oh, athlete, I will pay you cash for your likeness rights. I'll pay you 10 grand up front and I will give you a 25% commission off every merchandising deal that we set up through you. The university will control it. So I'll make sure that you don't sign a deal with a casino or with a porn company or something that's going to embarrass us. You know, we'll make sure it's on the level. The university will get a little bit of money and you'll get some money and we'll be a more effective agent for you than uh, another agent that you might find might be. Um, and if you're a school, you know, we've got a big business school or a great law department, you know, that might be some, a real competitive advantage. You know, that, that would be a thing you can do. And that also might help get Olympic athletes a little bit of money. So there's lots of ways logistically this could work. It's really hard for me to take seriously the doom and gloom arguments that this is going to end competitive balance or squish the little guy because little guy is already pretty squished. Yeah. Like I saw, you know, Bradley University's president was bemoaning this. I'm like, man, like nobody is taking, you know, is you're not fighting with Illinois for a recruit. You're yeah. fighting with Drake, and Drake can't afford anybody either. So this doesn't change your world. Like yeah. that's that's kind of how I, I look at this. Yeah. I mean, Ohio State already has, you know, what they call brand you, where they want you to leave as a brand already. So this could obviously fold right in. And you mentioned maybe making some money for Olympic athletes. I think it also is important to realize that I think there's money to be made for every athlete on every roster. Uh, it might not be a ton of money, but there is some. I mean, right now, a, a, a female swimmer cannot go be paid to coach a camp at her high school or her local YMCA because that would be in violation. I think there's money to be made in things yep. like that. And, and it might not be a ton of money. It might just be, a you know, 50 bucks, 100 bucks here or there. But that's money that they should be able to make. But uh, all right, Matt. I, I, I totally agree. I'll, I'll, I'll mention that here real quick before we go. Like the other argument that I hear pretty often is that this is terrible for women's sports. So that we're going to drop sports or anything. I'm like, yeah. I think a university may decide to do that, but that's their choice and not because of, of endorsement money. So like one a successful team, even if the individuals do not have marketability, a successful team may have marketability. Like Ohio State's synchronized swimming team kicks everyone's ass every year. Does an individual synchronized swimmer have marketability? Probably not. But the team cutting an ad, holding a national championship trophy, probably does. Um, and, and you're right. Like the, the example I like to give is, you know, my first writing job was working for the Newark Advocate and some of the assorted papers, you know, in that part of the state covering high school football. And, you know, Lincoln County cares a lot about high school athletics, but the county as a whole might only produce, you know, a small handful of Division One athletes across any sport. Um, and a lot of them are generally not high performers um, in, in college. You know, for every guy like a Storm Klein who is a, a four-star recruit, um, there's, there's a lot of people who are backup left tackles at Western Michigan. But when those people come back home, and they go to Indian Mountain Mall and East and go sign autographs, even if they were just a left tackle for that first year or two, they have marketability. People will care about them. Certainly people will care about the Olympic athletes running camps or, or giving instructional lessons, lessons or anything. It's, you know, if they hustle and that's a priority for them, I think some money is there. It's not going to be life-changing money, although you know, for somebody like a Kelsey Mitchell, I think you might be surprised about what kind of money she might yeah. be able to get. Um, but it's certainly greater than zero. When you hear somebody say like, this is only going to impact 2% of athletes. 
you know, maybe only 2% of athletes are signing six-figure deals, but the likeness rights for most athletes and, and literally every college football player is greater than zero. I, com- I completely agree with you there. So, um, all right, let's wrap. Let's wrap up on one last Ohio State on-field question for you, Matt. Through six games, granted, not against great competition, but halfway through the 2019 season, where do you legitimately see them ending their season at? And and against two or or with a win, without a win, holding a trophy, without a trophy, where, where do you see the next six to you know nine games going? I think right now this is pretty clearly a playoff team. There are, you know, still four teams on the schedule. Well, three teams, I guess, <laughs> on, on the schedule that I think certainly could beat them in one game. You know, I think this is the best Wisconsin team we've seen in a while. Penn State looks much better uh, than I anticipated. And Michigan, you know, even though they've got a paleolithic offense, that's always going to be a game you can't take for granted. But right now, their base level of talent and on both sides of the ball, they're the best team in the Big Ten. And even with one loss, there's enough going on in this conference. I think they're a playoff team. Yeah. If it gun to my head, I think I like the upside of Alabama or LSU a little bit more. Um, and so I think either of them might be safe for national title bets. But I think this is a team that gets to the playoffs and has a really good chance of winning at least one game. Yeah, I, I think the... I think a lot of fans might be looking forward to a potential Ohio State-Clemson rematch this time because I think... I think that Ohio State would have the opportunity to maybe not do what Clemson did to Ohio State last time they met in the playoffs, but would be able to get a certain measure of revenge that would satisfy a lot of Ohio State fans. Because I, I, I think that Ohio State is up there with those top two, maybe three SEC teams. And then there's a significant chasm between who would be the next two or three teams, whether that's Clemson or Oklahoma um, or anybody else after Ohio State, Alabama, LSU, and Georgia. And clearly, not all three of those SEC teams are going to make it into the playoff. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I like, I like Ohio State's chances to score on Clemson. Um, Clemson <laughs> at least a field goal, man. I, I, at least a field goal. Their upside is still very substantial, but their offense has regressed a little bit, which surprised me how, given how much they've returned. Yeah. And yeah, if you graduate your entire defensive line and send them to like the AFC South, <laughs> there's going to be a little bit of a regression. I, you know, I, I don't know if they're going to lose this year because they're still going to be 14-point favorites against literally everybody else they play this year. Yeah, um, And that might actually hurt them in the playoffs. Like, yeah. you know, they're, 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 they may be the top, a top four team. They are not playing like a top four team right now. And depending on what happens, you know, across the country and in the SEC especially, I could see an argument for Clemson not making it. I don't think that that would actually happen. I think the committee is too set in their ways and, and too set in the 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 history of these teams. But I could see a situation where you have Ohio State, Alabama, and Oklahoma all undefeated, and then you have to contend with a second SEC team versus Clemson. I could see that happening. I think it would be a really interesting argument. I don't know that the committee would get it right, but I think it would be an interesting discussion. Yeah, I, I'm trying not to like let myself get too emotionally invested or <laughs> All right, fair enough. in those kind of arguments because there's just so much football left to be played and so many unknowns. I would, I, I do feel pretty comfortable looking at Clemson's schedule and saying like, you better win all your games, buddy. Yes, because your your primo non-conference game is a team that might go seven and five, and you might have only one top forty team in your conference. 
Yeah. Uh, and you might not face that team until the ACC championship game. And so, and like what we saw with Florida State back in 2014, you don't necessarily get the benefit of the doubt, even if you go undefeated. Like if Clemson can win all of their games, then probably won't be the number one seed. If they lose a game, they got to hope for a lot of chaos. Yeah. Anything other than that with any other team, I don't feel comfortable being def- like being definitive at all. That's the only thing I feel comfortable with. Yeah. Watch out for Wake, though, man. I, I, Wake could do something. I, I, I would enjoy watching that game. It could be, it could be fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Land Grant Holy Land in Conversation. Thanks, of course, go out to Matt Brown. If you're finding this podcast on the Land Grant Holy Land website, don't forget to go to your favorite podcasting app and subscribe so that you get all of the LGHL audio goodness downloaded directly to your device. We will be bringing you at least one episode every single day during the college football regular season. Also, don't forget to follow Land Grant Holy Land on Twitter at LandGrant33. And if you are so inclined, you can follow me at BWWMATT. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. And go Bucks.